Well, I want to welcome you to Trinity Bible Church as well, both here and in the, the worship center this morning. And we are continuing on through the Gospel of Mark. So go ahead and turn there uh, in your Bibles this morning, Mark chapter 15. And uh, it's, it's a little strange being in the chapters on Jesus' death and resurrection uh, during the season of Advent. But I think we're going to see a lot of connections here this morning, and I'm excited to kind of journey through with you uh, today. And uh, we've been using just four Discovery Bible Study questions, if you haven't been with us uh, before today, um, just simple questions that you can use to study the Bible for yourself or uh, to study with a friend, somebody that you're sharing Jesus with or inviting to read the Bible with you. Uh, great way, just simple way to go through a chapter or two of Scripture so Mark chapter 15 and 16, but I think we're going to back up just a couple verses back into Mark chapter 14 uh, today, and then I'm going to read up through Mark chapter 15, verse 32. So follow along with me today, Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 55. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they could not find any. For many were giving false testimony against him, and the testimonies did not agree. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him, stating, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another not made by hands. Yet their testimony did not agree even on this. Then the high priest stood up before them all and questioned Jesus, Don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest questioned him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his robes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. Then some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, and to beat him, saying, Prophesy! The temple servants also took him and slapped him. While Peter was in the courtyard below, one of the high priest's maidservants came. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus, the man from Nazareth. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. Then he went out to the entryway, and a rooster crowed. When the maidservant saw him again, she began to tell those standing nearby, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing there said to Peter again, You certainly are one of them, since you are also a Galilean. And he started to curse and swear, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered when Jesus had spoken the words to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. As soon as it was morning, having held a meeting with the elders, scribes, and the whole Sanhedrin, the chief priests tied Jesus up, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. So Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, You say so. And the chief priests accused him, accused him of many things. Pilate questioned him again, Aren't you going to answer? Look how many of these things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still did not answer, and so... Pilate was amazed. At the festival, Pilate used to release for the people a prisoner whom they requested. There was one named Barabbas who was in prison with rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. 
the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them as was his custom. Pilate answered them, Do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? For he knew it was because of envy that the chief priests had handed him over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas to them instead. Pilate asked them again, Then what do you want me to do with the one you call king of the Jews? Again they shouted, Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Why? What has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them, and after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led him away into the palace, that is, the governor's residence, and called the whole company together. They dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns, and put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! They were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him. And getting down on their knees, they were paying him homage. After they'd mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on him. They led him out to crucify him. They forced a man coming in from the country who was, a, who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide which, what each one would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge was written, uh, written against him was the king of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha! The one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe, even those who were crucified with him, taunted him. So God, we come to you today and we thank you for your, your word. We thank you that uh, you have um, inspired uh, these scriptures that we read, that they are God-breathed and they are profitable for teaching, for correction, for rebuke, for training in righteousness so that we here today um, can be adequate and equipped for every good work. We pray that you would teach us through your word and, and through your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Kyle and uh, Pastor Kalen a couple weeks ago um, shared some of their high school sports memories, and so I thought that was a wide open door for me uh, <laughs> to share about the glory days or not so glorious in this case. But when I was a, when I was a junior in high school, uh, my basketball team, Janesville High School, uh, we made uh, Substate, which is the game before you get to the state tournament. And this was a big deal in Janesville because no Janesville team, as far as anyone could remember or ever since, has made it that far. Um, not a great sports town up to that point. Uh, and so 
it was a big deal. Everyone came out, you know, buses were, were taking people to this game. And it was against a team, one of the best teams in the state, who had the best player in the state, in all classes. And of course, we're the smallest class, but they had the best player in the state in all of high school basketball. Their center, a guy named uh, Jordan Eggleseeder, seven foot one, seven foot five wingspan. And if you're sitting here thinking, well, he probably couldn't shoot free throws, or you could probably play, you know, hack-a-shack on him, as they say. No, shot 80% from the free throw line, left-handed, right? And I am six foot three, not necessarily a tall fellow, but in the town of Janesville, I'm a giant, right? Um, and I am the one who's going to guard this guy, best player in the state, seven foot one. And so we show up, and uh, it went about as you'd think it went. It would go, right? Uh, on defense, I mean, you're th- it's, it's uh, Steph Curry versus Shaq here, right? I mean, like, I'm, I'm like uh, my third grade and first grade son would be against me. They're, you know, trying to jump up and hit the ball out of his hand, um, helpless on defense. We tried triple teaming. That didn't work. On offense, you know, I'm here, I'm getting the ball, I'm thinking I have a wide open shot, uh, you know, Jordan Eggleseeder's about 10 feet away, can't possibly block my shot. As soon as I get it up, he comes out of nowhere, swats me out of the building, right? And so we got humiliated, embarrassed. I mean, we had a great season, lost in substate by 50 points, okay? Not a great way to end the best season of Janesville basketball that's ever existed. Um, but hey, well, the, the great thing was for the next like four years or whatever, this guy, uh, Jordan Eggleseeder, went on to play at UNI. And for the next four years, I could say as, as my friends are watching him on TV or whatever, I could be like, yeah, I, I guarded him in high school. He wasn't that tough. Yeah. No, he wasn't. <laughs> it was... <laughs> But, uh, but I knew the real truth. You know, we got, we got destroyed. And what if, what if that story had gone a little differently? What if when we'd showed up at this sub-state game, Jordan Eggleseeder had decided that he was going to not use all of his talents and abilities? What if he had decided that on that particular game, he was just going to kind of defer to his teammates, just, you know, pass the ball around a little more, stand out at the three-point line, not go in to the lane, not try to score, and what if he thought to himself, hey, I'm even going to let that Peter Salmon guy, you know, I'm going to let him dunk over me maybe a a time or two, and um, I'll even help him out because he'll need a little boost to get up there. (laughs) And his team, you know, think about it, his team would have been thinking, Jordan, what are you thinking? What are you doing? His coach, would have been losing his mind on the bench, pulling his hair out. What are you doing? The UNI scouts watching the game, they'd be thinking, I don't know about this whole full-ride scholarship thing. we got to rethink this. And I like the second version of the story, I think, a lot, a lot better. But that's not what really happened, as history will tell you. No one with that much ability ends up saying, hey, I'm not going to use all of my abilities. In fact, I'm going to let someone else humiliate me. I'm going to let the other team destroy me. 
And, and this is why Jesus' actions so confused the religious leaders, his disciples, Roman governors like Pilate. Even though it's very clear in Mark's gospel that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus doesn't do what they would expect someone who is the Messiah, the Son of God, to, to do. He doesn't do with someone, what someone with all that ability and power uh, would do in their estimation. And again, over and over again in the Gospel of Mark, we see clearly proclaimed who Jesus is. Uh, in, in chapter 1, at the very beginning, Mark's sort of title headline of the whole Gospel is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John the Baptist announces that Jesus is the Lord. At Jesus' baptism, the Father from heaven proclaims that uh, this is my beloved Son. Jesus forgives sins in Mark chapter 2, and they say, you know, who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus says he's Lord of the Sabbath, and everyone knows what that means. The religious leaders know what that means, that he's Lord of the Sabbath. That's a claim to divinity. The demons, they call Jesus the, the Son of God or the Holy One of God. And Jesus doesn't bother to correct them. He simply tells them, okay, keep that quiet uh, for now here. Jesus miraculously calms storms. He has power over the winds and the waves. And when he does these kinds of miracles, his disciples look at him like, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? Jesus displays himself uh, in his full glory in the transfiguration to his closest uh, inner circle of disciples in Mark chapter 9. And in Mark chapter 14, among other instances, uh, Jesus, he tells the priest that he is the Christ, the Son of God. He says, uh, I am and he, he, he says that he is the Son of Man, prophesied by Daniel, who would ride on the clouds and occupy a throne next to God. And this claim um, caused the priest to sanctimoniously tear his robe and say, this is it. This is the last straw. This man has blasphemed they were already looking for a way to kill him. Pilate even can see it. Pilate can even see that these guys, they're just jealous. They're just doing this out of envy. But they've found the, th the opportunity that they were looking for to execute Jesus and condemn him to death. Pilate he even goes and asks Jesus, you know, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, well, you say so. You know, he kind of says it without saying it. And so, again, over and over, Jesus is clearly displayed and proclaimed as the Messiah, the Son of God. There's all of this evidence that points to it in the Gospel of Mark. But at the same time, Jesus doesn't totally act the way that they would expect the Messiah to act. He doesn't arrive on this earth in power. He arrives as a baby. 
And that, that confounds them. That confuses, especially his hometown friends of Nazareth. Do you remember that story? When he shows up in Nazareth in the Gospel of Mark, and they're like, this is Mary's son. Like, we know him. Who does he think he is? Jesus, when he comes, he, at least to the people in Nazareth and to many others, doesn't seem to them to be anyone particularly special. He strangely doesn't blast news of who he is to everyone. Instead, he tells parables. He tells these riddles that he has to bring his disciples in to explain to them. He tells people sometimes, hey, don't speak about what I'm doing. Don't speak about who I am. And to top it off, when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, he doesn't drive out the Romans. He drives out the money changers from the temple. And so this leads the crowds, the disciples, Pilate, others to claim, to to believe that he is not who he claims to be. He's called a liar. He's called a fraud. He's called a blasphemer. He's betrayed by Judas. He's disowned by Peter. I mean, Peter, right? Like, Peter was his number one fanboy up to this point. And even he disowns him, denies that he has anything to do with him. They just could not fathom that somebody with this kind of massive power would restrain their power. They just couldn't fathom that the Son of God would not exercise all of his power all of the time. And I, I got to say, we're not all that different. We're not all that different. Because there are many times where we too question why God doesn't use all of his power all of the time. We're constantly asking questions about God, wondering why God doesn't use his power in the way that we would want him to. We say things like, well, if I were God, here's what I would do. Or uh, maybe we don't say that, but we think it. And so because, because Jesus' claim of being divine doesn't match up with how they think a divine being should use his power, they reject him. And not only do they reject him, but they humiliate him. The high priest and his entourage, they, they spit on him, they beat him, they slap him. Peter denies him. The chief priests falsely accuse him, and he's silent. The crowd chooses Barabbas over him and shouts for him to be crucified. Pilate has him flogged. The soldiers mock him. They dress him in a royal robe, and they salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. They bow in front of him, mocking him. They hit his head with a stick after they put a crown of thorns on him. They spit on him. And then they crucify him. And they hang him on a cross next to common criminals. 
And even these common criminals taunt him. They say, let the Messiah, the Son of God, let the King of Israel, let him come down on the cross, from the cross so that we may see and believe. Do you notice that in verse 32? So that we may see and believe. Jesus, everything you've shown us up to this point isn't enough to believe. It's not enough. All the miracles, all the calming of the wind and the waves, the feeding of the 5,000, the raising from the dead of Jairus' daughter, the baptism for the Father announces from heaven, none of this is enough for us to believe. You have to use all of your power all of the time. You have to use your power in the way that we think you should use it. You have to show us again and again and again in order for us to believe. And Jesus, if you don't come down from that cross, you are not who you say you are. And so they do all of these things to God in human form. As, as the carol says, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity. They do all of this to Jesus, and Jesus somehow restrained himself. He restrained his power with every false accusation. I mean, how do you, how do you, how do you deal with being falsely accused? But yet he was silent, and he restrained himself. He was, he was slapped. He was beaten. He was flogged. And with every insult, with every strike, he could have called legions of angels to come to his rescue. But yet he restrains himself. He restrains his power. And because of this, it confirms the bias of the priests and of Pilate and of the crowds and everyone who you know, is envious of Jesus and really doesn't want him to ultimately be who he says he is. They just can't conceive of a Messiah, of a divine being that would allow this kind of suffering to happen to them. They don't have a grid for a Messiah who doesn't use all of his power all of the time. They don't have a grid certainly for a suffering Messiah. But there are many places where Jesus and his suffering and his kind of uh, lowly condition that he subjected himself to where that was prophesied and foretold in the scriptures. Let me read for you Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament. If you've never read Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament before, I want you to notice how so much of what we're going to read here in this chapter prophesied 700 years earlier 
So much of this was fulfilled in what we just read at the beginning of our time this morning. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 1. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised, and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses, and he carried our pains. But we, in turn, regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment, and who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death, because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and by his hands the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servants will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Do you notice how much of these verses is fulfilled by Jesus, by what we just read in Mark chapter 14 and 15. I mean, Jesus was not valued. He was despised. He was thought to be cursed by God as a blasphemer. He stood silent before his accusers. He was assigned a grave with the wicked by being crucified, but yet he was with a rich man on his death. How, how does that work? Well, Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, took him down off the cross and prepared his body for burial and laid him in his own tomb. Jesus had done no violence or spoken deceitfully, but he was pierced and punished for our sins. He became a guilt offering for us. He will justify many and carry their iniquities. And again, 700 years before the fact, Isaiah prophesies these things, and these things are fulfilled in Jesus' humiliation and his crucifixion. That even though these things were performed by the full free will and choice of Pilate and the religious leaders, God knew all of these things would take place ahead of time, and all of it came true. And even the picture as we... Uh, Remember and celebrate in this season of the year the picture of Jesus coming into this world as a baby. Even that was prophesied as well. In the Old Testament, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, the government will be on his shoulders, he will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, the dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. 
All of this greatness is prophesied. But yet he's coming and being born as a, as a baby. These, these humble beginnings are prophesied and foretold. And even Jesus during his time on earth, he predicted his, his suffering, his death, multiple times. And in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, one of the final times, he says, uh, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's look at our three, uh, three of our four Discovery Bible study questions. First, about God. What does this teach us about God? What does it tell us about God? Well, Jesus displays unbelievable meekness. Jesus is often described as meek in the Bible. Um, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 10.1. He says, Now I, Paul, myself appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of of Jesus. Now, our, our modern idea of meek often implies um, weakness or being timid, but that's not what meekness is. Meekness does not equal weakness. A good definition of meekness is, is power with restraint or power under control. Uh, the best way maybe to understand the concept of meekness is uh, the original Greek word for meekness is the word proutes, proutes. And I think it's helpful to understand how Greeks would use that word. The ancient Greek army, uh, when they needed horses, uh, they would go out and capture wild horses. And they would take these horses and they would evaluate them. They would be strictly evaluated and put through a series of tests by veteran horse trainers. Not every horse they caught had the necessary qualities of being a war horse. They would use them as war horses or um, possibly, you know, to carry a pack or to haul a cart. All of them were useful in some ways, but when they were looking for a war horse, they looked for a horse that was physically strong. It had to be able to handle a strenuous activity, had to be able to handle a rider with all of their armor and equipment and everything they needed in battle, and to be able to carry that rider with, with a great deal of speed and force in a conflict. The horse had to uh, have a willingness, show a willingness to obey. There are many uh, maneuvers that the horse needs to be taught, and they need to be trained, because uh, in battle, you have to have a horse that's well-trained if you want to survive. They also looked for in this horse um, kind of that, that intangible of a little bit of a fire in this horse. Like, does it have kind of this wild streak to it, uh, a fighting spirit? You need that when you're going into battle. And many horses didn't make the cut and were set aside for another purpose, but those war horses that qualified after being broken or, or gentled, once that horse was, was gentled, it was described with the Greek word proutes, meek or gentle. That it now, it now it could bear its master into battle under his 
self-control, follow his commands, meek, not weak, rippling, strong, powerful horses, but not wild, not unruly, not out of control, strong but restrained, power under control. And in Jesus' case, he has all power. The Son of God. But yet he shows incredible restraint as he endures suffering, not because he's weak, but because he's meek. Obedient to his Father's commands, a greater purpose that he's submitted to. And, and what is that greater purpose? Well, he, he's willing to endure all of this suffering to save us. The Old Testament prophecies about Jesus' suffering tell us that he suffered for our sins. He was crushed for our rebellion. The Lord laid on Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, the sins of the whole world. Jesus restrained his power for the purpose of being an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He subjected himself to the insults and the humiliation willingly. He became meek in order to save us. And third, we learn that he's perfectly capable. God is perfectly capable of bringing about his plan. God often restrains his power to bring about his plan. Jesus does this often in Mark, doesn't he? Some of us have been kind of scratching our heads. Why does Jesus you know, tell people, hey, don't speak about me? Why does Jesus kind of restrain the publicity about himself? Why does he even restrain sometimes the kinds of miracles that he could have been doing? Well, he does it for the sake of a greater plan and purpose, which was for the, the, the full sinfulness, the full display of the sinfulness of humanity to be brought to light as they crucify their innocent creator out of envy because they're jealous. God using the genuinely free will and free choices of individuals like Pilate and the chief priests and the Sanhedrin to bring about his plan. God's perfectly capable of bringing about his plan. Second, what did we learn about us? Well, very simply this morning, I think it's very clear that everyone is guilty. There's no skirting around it. Like, no one's off the hook here. I mean, look at the list as you go through in chapter 14 and chapter 15 of the people that abandoned Jesus, betrayed Jesus, insulted Jesus, mocked Jesus. I mean, you got Judas. You have uh, an unnamed follower of Jesus who... Um, runs away and loses his cloak on the way and runs away naked. And the writer says, um, um, a certain young man did this. We think it's Mark himself. There's members of the Sanhedrin, the chief priests. There's the crowds. There's Pilate. There's uh, the guards. There's those who were just kind of passing by the scene of the crucifixion. You just kind of came out to take a look at things, and they taunted and mocked Jesus. There's again the chief priests. 
And even the criminals being crucified alongside Jesus join in. And I mean, it's scandalous. It's shocking as we read this to see every single one, every single group fall into this. And uh, even people, even you, Peter, even you, the one who's all, you know, uh, 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 saying that you're going to be on the cross with Jesus, that you're going to suffer right next to Jesus, even he denies him. Jews, Gentiles, religious leaders, those who are not religious, Romans, government leaders, everyday common folk, his own friends. And so we can... We can read this, and sometimes our temptation is when we read the Gospels, we kind of think, oh man, what were they thinking? Like, what is wrong with these people? But the reality is that we would have done the same. Everyone abandons him, everyone is guilty, everyone is a sinner. Martin Luther said, the whole value of meditation of the suffering of Christ lies in this, that man should come to the knowledge of himself and sink and tremble. Seeing the way Jesus was abandoned and betrayed and denied and mocked and flogged and beaten and crucified, it should not cause us to puff up our chests and arrogantly think that it never would have been me. It should cause us to understand, I am caught, cut from the same cloth as Pilate and the disciples and the crowds and the guards and the chief priests. I'm no better. It should cause us, as, as, as Luther says, to come to the knowledge of ourself and sink and tremble. Thirdly, what is this, what is Jesus asking of me here Well, very simply, uh, trust in Jesus and what he did for you on the cross. To pay for your sin and your guilt. You gotta recognize here this morning, and maybe there are some of you today that haven't come to this place yet recognizing that. And I am, I am a sinner in need of this, in need of what Jesus did. If you haven't yet come to that place, um, let me just ask you if you've, if you've really examined your heart, if you've really been honest with yourself, if you've really examined God's word and seen the greatness and holiness of Jesus and what that perfect standard that God calls us to is. And Scripture says in Romans 23, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We can at least say that, right? That we've all fallen short well, the Bible calls that sin. And sinners need a savior. Sinners need forgiveness. And Jesus came and did what only he could do for our sin and for our salvation. Put your trust in Jesus today. Second here, we can trust that God has good reasons to restrain his power. God has good reasons to restrain 
his power. And as we walk with Jesus, sometimes we look at our lives and our circumstances and at the world around us, and we wonder, what is God doing here? Why is God not using all of his power all of the time? Because I know what he can do. And why does he not use his power in the way that I would want him to? And I just think many of us this Christmas season are grieving, for example, loved ones that we have lost who God didn't heal, at least not on this side of eternity. We're just in our culture today dealing with a political climate, a cultural climate, so many things happening around us, and we wonder, God, why don't you step in? Why don't you intervene? And I I wonder if, as we look at Jesus and how he restrains his power, in Mark chapter 14 and 15, and then as we look at Mark chapter 16, I didn't read it this morning, but um, hopefully you were able to read it on your own this week. Mark chapter 16 and the, the resurrection of Jesus And the picture and the foretaste that we have as Christians of of what it's like when God's power is fully unleashed, overcoming sin and death and the grave. Um, As we look at these things, we can can understand. When this world looks more like a, a Mark 14 and 15 world than it does a Mark 16 world, we can understand and trust that God has good reasons to restrain his power. Even, even when that loved one that you've been praying for for years, for decades and decades, that they would you know, return to Jesus and they still haven't come back to him, you can, you can trust that God has good reasons to restrain his power. Even when your mental health isn't getting as uh, quickly, better as quickly as you would hope it would, you can You can trust him. You can trust God in that. Even when you wonder where God is. You know, maybe right now in your life you don't feel his presence as you have at other points in your life. You can still trust that God God has good reasons to restrain his power. May we not be like those who are standing in front of the cross, pointing at Jesus and saying, Perform for us. Do this for us. Show us the money or else we're not going to believe. Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. And finally, we need to imitate the meekness of Jesus. Imitate the meekness of Jesus. Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And we don't have the same kind of divine power as Jesus, but all of us have, have power, and is that power under control? Do you ever restrain yourself? Do you ever control yourself? Or do you always have to exercise all of your power? Do you go around trying to you know, right every wrong, answer every question, fix every problem, rescue everyone and everything? Do you try to control it all? Or are you 
humble, knowing that even Jesus, who had all power, didn't use all of it all of the time. He allowed himself to be falsely accused, to be abused, to be crucified. Now, this was, of course, for a particular purpose. But do you have a greater purpose that would cause you to want to imitate the meekness of Jesus? Where you you don't have to win every battle. You don't have to always have the last word. And for me, just transparently, honestly, um, that it, it, that's hard for me. I'm a preacher, right? So um, it's, it's, it's harder. It's easy when I know I'm wrong, actually. Um, it's harder when I think I'm right. To, to, to be okay with saying, you know what? I, I don't have to always prove it. <laughs> I don't always have to get everyone to agree with me. Imitate the meekness of Jesus. This is what I believe these chapters teach us, and especially this time of year, as we center our thoughts and our focus and our, um, our imagination around Christmas and around Jesus coming um, to us in flesh. That divine power, no less divine. But yet, somehow, God saw fit for his good plan, for his good purpose, and for our salvation to restrain his divine power in the form of a a baby, of a child. And he did it for you and me. Let's worship him, let's trust him, and let's imitate him. God, we thank you for your word. May it ever always um, humble us. God, your word is this two-edged sword that shows us um, the reality of who you are, and it shows us the reality of who we are. And um, certainly this, this passage has to be one of those that for us just um, cuts to the heart of our nature and of our need for you, and uh, we just acknowledge that again today. Help us to trust you, even when we don't understand this concept of meekness and why and how (laughs) um, you did this and why you did this, and help us to trust. And God, as we think about this season, uh, we're just in awe. We worship you as our Savior. Um, We worship you as our Lord. And we say you are. You are the King. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.